Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. The Book of Psalms, chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. New Living Translation Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. He existed before anything else, and He holds all creation together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, New Living Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with Crystal C's founder and the author of The Prodigal's Advocate, R.D. Fierro. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue our discussion for how we can be sure that the God of the Bible exists. And to lead us into the discussion, we are using some extracts from Crystal C's upcoming audiobook version of The Prodigal's Advocate. R.D., why don't you tell us a little bit more about The Prodigal's Advocate? and why you chose to use the clips from the audio version to help the listeners begin to think more about how we can be certain that there is a God and that He has revealed Himself to us through His creation and His Word. Down through the years, I've had a lot of conversations with people who have asked me why I am a Christian. When I answer them, I usually start by telling them that I believe that the Christian faith is true. I start there because if the Bible and Christianity weren't true, there would be no reason for paying any attention to them whatsoever, regardless of whatever reasons people might cite. And the assertion that Christianity is propositionally true is a radical statement in this day and age, because we are constantly told today that it's impossible to know which of the various ideas about God are true, and therefore, all ideas about God are equally acceptable. Exactly. But if we are to be effective advocates for our faith and to address the legitimate questions that our friends and neighbors may have about Christianity or the Bible, we need to be aware of the ideas and the attitudes that are pervading our culture at any particular point in time. So for today's clip from The Prodigal's Advocate, we're going to listen to an exchange between the prodigal and a college professor that the prodigal encounters in the amphitheater where they're both waiting to be called to judgment. Just as a reminder to our listeners, though, 
We're still a little ways away from releasing the full version of the audiobook, but the hard copy and the ebook are available now from a variety of sources, including Crystal C's website. RD, do you want to set the stage for today's excerpt? Well, just as a brief review for those listeners who may not have been able to join us on our last show, Prodigal's Advocate is a fictional adventure that takes an in-depth look at the reasons that people give for either believing or for not believing in God and Jesus. And it does so by following a man in about his mid-30s, we call him the Prodigal, who goes through a series of experiences following his death in a tragic accident. After he dies, the prodigal goes to a humongous amphitheater where he finds himself waiting along with a huge crowd of people to be called into the Hall of Judgment. He's going to be called into this judgment hall as well as everybody else, and they're all going to be called to face judgment before the judge who is called the one without shadow. Now, while the prodigal is in this amphitheater, he has a series of conversations with others in the crowd all of whom are just there waiting, and there's no entertainment in the amphitheater. So pretty much all they've got to do is talk to each other and visit as they're waiting. So he has a series of conversations with others in the crowd. He very quickly discovers that people's experiences after death aren't the same for everybody. Now, in this particular extract, the prodigal is having a conversation with the gentleman that used to be a college professor, and he's talking about the role and meaning of religion. Before I died, I was a professor of comparative religion, top of my class from the best philosophy and divinity schools, schools so prestigious that everyone knows them instantly when I name them. Once you've spent some time studying these things, life after death, myths, and such, you start seeing common themes emerging in all the various religions. And once you study the history, it's pretty easy to see how they all start and why they're so popular. I nodded my head as if I agreed with him, though it was really just a way to avoid saying anything. People everywhere, here or there, need their religion. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But what they never stop to consider is why it is that they need it in the first place. I mean, how did all these people get very similar ideas to begin with? And you know? I asked, trying not to sound too skeptical. Sure. And any really intelligent person would, too, if they took the time to think about it the way I did. What's really happening is that people everywhere know that there's something more to the universe than life on that world. But they're either too ignorant to understand, or they're too afraid to face the truth. When I was back on Earth, like most of my colleagues, I was sure that a person's need to believe in something bigger than themselves was just a psychological crutch of sorts. But when I woke up in the dark place, I started to realize that I hadn't thought everything through. Once I got here, I was able to integrate my extensive background in religious customs and beliefs with a new experience I had just had. I realized then that if religious belief had just been a crutch, it wouldn't have been nearly as pervasive as it was. At least there would have been large groups of people that wouldn't have needed it. But there weren't any. In every civilization throughout recorded history, there is evidence of widespread belief in gods or goddesses, supernatural beings, life after death, all that sort of thing. And the evidence shows that the belief was common among rich and poor, weak and strong, men and women, old and young, civilized people, or savages. Religious beliefs are so pervasive on earth 
that they came as close to being a universal phenomenon as anything I could think of. Sure, the details varied, different names, customs, and characteristics of their central figure or figures. But when you think about it, those were really arguments about trivial differences compared to the really big fact that just about everybody knew that there was something above and beyond the world they lived in. People everywhere knew that something existed beyond what they could test with their five senses. Call it a nearly universal apprehension of something divine. I came to realize that the ubiquitous notion that divinity exists is evidence that it really does exist. Otherwise, why would everyone, everywhere, get the same kinds of ideas? If the idea of something divine was pure superstition, like many of my colleagues believed, it should have faded with scientific advances. But it didn't. But the error of most people was that they went looking for divinity out there somewhere. They thought that they would find the divine in some mythical heaven or nirvana. Ironically, they were right to look for something divine, but they were 180 degrees wrong about where to look for it. Instead of looking out into the great beyond, they needed to look in the other direction. The other direction? I asked, sounding quizzical without trying. Yes, we don't need to look out. We need to look in, inside ourselves. People everywhere have a sense that there's something divine afoot in the universe. They just don't realize that it's them. It makes so much sense when you just stop to think. Man's reasoning and intellectual abilities are so far beyond anything else in the animal kingdom that it's not hard to figure out that somewhere along the evolutionary path, a remarkable transformation took place. A sort of super step forward. Even Charles Darwin's colleague, Alfred Russell Wallace, famously wrote that man was overqualified for his environment, a fact at odds with the central thesis of their evolutionary hypothesis. Wallace said that man possessed a brain good enough for a philosopher, while at the same time admitting that if natural selection were true, man only needed a brain slightly better than an ape's to meet the needs of his environment. Wallace's observations stuck a knife in the heart of the notion that blind chance could produce man's brain, a fact Darwin himself acknowledged. At some point, man went from being the best of beasts to something truly extraordinary, a whole new kind of being. In effect, man went from being merely a thinking animal to a whole new plateau where genuine enlightenment, divinity, if you will, was within his grasp. Man is the only entity that can conceive of realities beyond the senses, and people have been doing so for thousands of years. What they're sensing intuitively, and what we are starting to experience in this place, is that there is much more to reality than life on one little planet. And bingo, it all revolves around us. Look around you, and what do you see? Men and women. Good old homo sapiens. You notice that the Guardians are serving us. We're not serving them. Whatever they are, they know that we're better than they are. Put it all together and you quickly realize that what it all means is that divinity really exists. It's just that we are the divine beings that we've all dreamed about or feared all these years. So in that scene, the prodigal hears the professor advocating the idea that all religions are essentially the same or at least that the variations among them are insignificant. Of course, this professor is able to draw one true conclusion from his otherwise erroneous observations. 
he is at least able to discern that the observable universe is not all there is to existence. And that's the point we began discussing last time on Anchored by Truth. Yes. The professor in that excerpt was essentially acknowledging that the universe that we can see points to something that's bigger and larger than itself. And this is not a particularly remarkable understanding or revelation. Philosophers, even ones who have had no connection to Judaism or Christianity or the Bible, have made exactly the same observation. Aristotle, for instance, reasoned that somewhere there must be an unmoved or prime mover. Aristotle reasoned that for anything to be in motion, to move from a state of potentiality to actuality, something had to cause the animation or the movement. So Aristotle referred to the original being or entity that did that as an unmoved mover or a prime mover. So when Christians assert that the universe that they see contains evidence of a God or a necessary being or an unmoved mover or whatever, they're not really saying anything that hasn't been recognized by lots of people for thousands of years. Recently, there's kind of arisen this notion that somehow science has demonstrated that God doesn't exist or at a minimum, God is a necessary. But actually, the notion that science has somehow disproved God is of very recent origin. Now, I personally think that one of the reasons that this notion, a rather peculiar notion that somehow that science demonstrates that God doesn't exist, I think that one of the reasons that it is a fairly recent origin is because logic and reason, when we observe the visible universe, logic and reason demand that there be an explanation for existence. And of course, last time on Anchored by Truth, we began the discussion about how logic and reason do demonstrate that there must be an explanation for everything that we can see around us. In our last episode, you pointed out that the great theologian R.C. Sproul used to say that there are only four possible explanations for the existence of everything, or for anything for that matter. Everything could be an illusion. Everything could be self-created. Everything we see could be self-existent. Or four, everything could have been created by something or someone that is self-existent. There truly aren't any other reasonable possibilities. And last time, we discussed that the first two possibilities contain unavoidable, logical contradictions that disqualifies them from being a valid explanation. Yes. Everything that we see around us can't be an illusion because an illusion requires a being to experience the illusion. So to claim that everything we see is an illusion simply would point the need for a real being to exist. If someone were to claim that everything that we see in our visible universe around us is just an illusion, we would ask them, well, who's having the illusion? So there's an inescapable logical contradiction in the claim that everything we see is an illusion. Similarly, everything that we see can't be self-created because something must first be something before it can do something. Just thinking about it logically, being must precede doing. Creating is doing something. So for something to be self-created would require that it do something before it is something. It would have to be before it could do. And that's a violation of the law of non-contradiction because it implies that something could both be and not be at exactly the same time. 
The law of non-contradiction, of course, says that A cannot be A and non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. So self-creation, again, involves an inescapable and inherent self-contradiction that rules it out as being a valid explanation for everything that we can see. So, logically, everything we see around us can't just be an illusion, and it can't be self-created. So now we're down to two possibilities. Everything we see is either self-existent or was created by something or someone that is self-existent. Either way, we are now running into the concept of self-existence. So why don't we address what that means for a second? Well, self-existence simply means that the self-existent entity possesses the power of existence unto and by itself. Or, said slightly differently, anything that is self-existent would be independent, non-contingent, and non-derived. In other words, a self-existent entity would need nothing from anyone or anything else to sustain its own existence. Now, of course, you can very quickly see from that definition, no human being or anything that we see that's alive today is self-existent. For a human being, all you have to do is cut off the oxygen for a few minutes, water for a few days, food for a few weeks, or sunlight for a few months, and death would be the inevitable result. Human beings, like all living creatures, are completely dependent on their surroundings and their environment to sustain their life. So human beings, or anything alive for that matter, cannot be self-existent. Well, that's pretty obvious. Human beings aren't self-existent. No living creature we see or know about is. And the self-existence differs from the self-creation because there is nothing inherently contradictory in the concept that something possesses the power to exist on its own without support from anything outside itself. That's why the answer to the child's question about who made God is no one. God wasn't made. He has always been in existence. God is not self-created. God is self-existent. And there is a critical difference between the two concepts, even if people aren't always careful in their wording. But there are many who would say that even though people and living creatures aren't self-existent, that the universe itself might be, that the matter and energy that comprise the universe might always have been in existence. Isn't that a possibility? Well, it's a possibility, yes. But in the case of considering whether the universe is self-existent, here science, and I'm talking about real science, starts to point out that the universe does not look very much like something that possesses the power of existence unto and by itself. In other words, the possibility that the universe is self-existent, has always been in existence, is inconsistent with empirical observations. For instance, it's obvious that anything that possesses the power of existence would be eternal. It would exist eternally, eternally backward and eternally forward. Because a self-existent entity would have no dependence on anything outside of itself to sustain its existence, no need for food, water, energy, or anything else from that matter, because anything that is self-existent doesn't need anything or anyone else, it can't go out of existence. I think we need to unpack this last idea a little more. It's pretty easy to understand that anything or anyone that can independently sustain its own existence is eternal. After all, if it exists without help, support, or external assistance, there's no way that it can go out of existence. But what empirical observations are you thinking about 
when you say that science tells us that the universe had a beginning? Well, the most popular idea today about the universe's origins is certainly the Big Bang Theory. I'm talking about the scientific hypothesis now. is so popular that it's spawned TV shows, even one by that name. And it's also spawned an abundance of science fiction movies, books, podcasts, and other kinds of entertainment shows. You could easily say that in our culture today, the Big Bang Theory is practically ubiquitous. Ooh, I like that word. Ubiquitous. Present everywhere at all times. Yes. Anyway... The Big Bang Theory carries with it the notion that the universe, as it exists today, had a beginning point in space and time. Usually, the time assigned today is somewhere over 14 billion years ago. Now, as a hypothesis, the Big Bang Theory is a competing truth claim with biblical creationism. But both of those ideas, even though they compete with each other, point to at least one fact in common, and that is that the universe is not eternal. The Big Bang Theory more or less displaced the steady-state theory as the darling of science for explaining the existence of the universe. Well, one of the reasons that the Big Bang Theory displaced the steady-state theory was because scientists uncovered several facts, and there are several lines of evidence that are now typically offered to support the Big Bang Theory. For instance, one of those lines of evidence is that scientists now know that rather than being stationary within the universe, the galaxies themselves, as large and as unimaginably huge as they are, the galaxies themselves are actually in motion. They appear to be moving away from each other, and when you trace their motion back, they appear to be all moving away from a central point. That sort of harkens back to Aristotle's unmoved mover. Anything in motion must have been set in motion by a force outside itself, so there must have been a first cause. Exactly. Now, a second observation that helped bring many scientists around to the believing that the Big Bang Theory is the valid explanation for the origin of the universe was that there is a cosmic background radiation echo that is found whenever and wherever scientists look out into the universe. And the pattern and the wavelength for this radiation echo are consistent with what might be expected of an enormous explosion. So combined with some other empirical observations, such as those that pertain to the laws of thermodynamics, many scientists have come to believe that at one point in time, all the matter in the universe was compressed into an infinitesimally small point, and that that matter then exploded outward and created the visible universe. Now again, I'd like to point out that even though the Big Bang Theory is the most widely accepted and popular hypothesis about the universe's origins, it is by no means without its own observational problems. For now though, let's just say that if the theory were true, it would still mean that the universe has a beginning, and that would in turn mean that the universe is not eternal. And the laws of thermodynamics that help support the notion that the universe has a beginning also point to the universe having an ending? Yes. The first law of thermodynamics says that the amount of energy in a closed system remains constant. But the second law of thermodynamics says that the amount of usable energy in a closed system is constantly decreasing. The second law is sometimes referred to as entropy, or it's sometimes described as a tendency towards disorder. Now, however it's phrased, the second law is a shorthand way of encapsulating the universal observation that the amount of energy in the universe is constantly being used up. Now, this again tells us that the universe cannot be eternal, because the universe is always burning energy, 
If the universe were eternally old, then the finite supply of energy in the universe would already have been used up, and so all you'd have today would be a cold, dead universe. The basic point of the empirical observations related to the laws of thermodynamics tells us that as vast and as grand as the universe is, it is not eternal. It gives no indication whatsoever that it is eternal, and since the universe is not eternal, it doesn't give much evidence, as a matter of fact, it gives no evidence of being the self-existent entity that we're looking for. Well, as some observers have said, the only constant that we see when we study the universe is change, and we know of only two kinds of change, growth and decay. Anything that grows has a beginning. Anything that decays has an end. Either way, the change we see in the universe points away from it being self-existent. But that leaves us plenty of material for future episodes of Anchored by Truth. Exactamundo. And my third and final observation before we close for today is that at this point in our discussion about the existence of God and how we can be sure that God exists, all we've done up to this point is more or less focus on the observation that the universe's existence points to something outside of itself. In other words, it points to an immensely powerful and self-existent creator. But that's all that we've really established at this point. We really haven't discussed any of the other attributes, such as whether that being is good or righteous or merciful. But again, that gives us plenty of reasons to come back next time when we continue our discussion of how we can be confident that the God of the Bible not only created the universe, but continues to sustain and superintend His creation. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Since we're spending some time meditating on how best to bring the truth about the Lord God to a world that needs that truth, today let's pray a prayer for those who make that their life work, Christian missionaries. A prayer for Christian missionaries. Father of redemption, you are a powerful and loving God and our ever faithful tower of refuge and strength. You are a God who takes pleasure in rescuing lost sheep and in bringing them into your kingdom. You are the God of the ends and the means. May all the earth sing praises to your name. Lord, the Bible rightly asks how the lost can hear of the salvation available through Christ's life, death, and resurrection unless preachers are sent to proclaim the gospel. We know they cannot, and today, a great many of your faithful people continue to leave their families and homes to travel to remote corners to preach your message of hope and good news. Today, we want to pray for all these missionaries and to thank you for your provision of them. Lord, we know that many missionaries preach the gospel in lands where your word is not welcome. In fact, in some lands, to speak about you brings a sentence of death. We know that there are many places where government leaders and authorities will exercise the full power of their offices to oppose and persecute your messengers. Therefore, we pray for special protection for all those who preach in these dangerous countries and places. We ask that you watch over these missionaries protecting them as they travel and minister and confounding the efforts of those who seek their harm. We also pray that you give them fertile fields in which to plant your word, which is the seed of true life. 
We pray that you would open the hearts of those who hear the word. Give them the courage to accept Christ, even as they risk their lives to do so. Bring leaders out of the converted so that ministries and churches once begun will continue to grow and expand. Provide the resources the missionaries and churches need to sustain themselves, whether it be Bibles, educational literature, money, or resources for daily living. Show us how you would have us help and serve in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. While not all are called to go or preach, we know that there is a way that all of us can contribute. Help us to be persistent in our prayers and make us fervent in our desire to see your word spread and your kingdom grow. Christ commanded that his word be spread until he returns again. So in his holy name we pray for his kingdom and his messengers. Amen. Next time on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue our discussion about how we can be confident that the God of the Bible actually exists. And because a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics, we want to remind listeners that if they missed any episodes or if they just want to hear one again, all of these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us then, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.